The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. Um, Today we're going to be talking with Phil M. Jones about winning more business. Um, But before I speak to Phil and introduce you, I want to say a big thank you to my guests uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, the CEO of Earthwatch, Steve Gray, and also Stuart Pickles of LSP Leadership. And we did a really great interview on leadership, uh, on sustainable leadership, which I know is already being circulated around the entire Earthwatch organization around the globe. Um, with childcare last week, uh, due to a holiday, I was away. So I repeated a favorite show of mine on marketing with top marketing guru, Janet Schweitzer. Um, Janet is the marketeer behind Jay Abraham's Empire, Jack Canfield's. Uh, it's one of my favorites, so well worth a listen. Um, so today we're going to have talk to Phil. Um, he's already there. I can just hear him in the background at the moment. And we're going to talk about um, winning more business. So the question is, are you getting or letting um, countless opportunities pass you by due to fear of being too pushy with your selling. Um, Today's going to be relevant whether you're a salesperson or you're in a non-sales role. We're going to talk about that because in non-sales roles, we have to sell as well. During this interview, I'll be introducing Phil. He's a best-selling author. He's a multiple award-winning speaker and sales trainer. In fact, he was sales trainer of the year in 2013. Um, He's trained more than 2 million people worldwide, and he's coached some of the biggest brands in the world. And his mission is to teach the world to to sell. So Phil's really getting known globally. Um, He's written a series of best-selling books. I'm looking at one at the moment. It's called Toolbox, Essential Selling Skills to Win More Business. Magic Words got a new one coming out saying about exactly what to say in about a month's time. He's also a really inspirational guy. um, He lives between the UK and the US. Um, and he has, um, as, as you'll find out, you know, a lot of um, interesting qualities that I think we can all learn from. So whether you're experienced in sales or you're a non-sales person, do listen in today because you're going to find a lot of value. So I'd recommend you also have a pen and paper with you and a handy. So a huge welcome to Phil M. Jones. Hi, Chris, and hi to all the listeners. Thanks for inviting me on the show. And I guess with a, with a build-up like that, there's no pressure on me today. Uh, absolutely not at all, Phil. Not at all. <laughs> um, hey, you, um, where are you based? Where are you calling from today? Today I'm calling from my home just outside New York City and I'm um, about to head on to Annapolis this afternoon to join some friends on a boat, which will be a, uh, a fun experience. Oh, but very nice indeed. We'll have a little chat with you in a minute about how you ended up in, in America. But do you want to maybe start and tell us a little bit about your background? And I know you, your background's interesting, but it also... And it really leads into why selling is so important to you. So maybe just you know link your background and why it is that you do what you do. Yeah, I'll do my best to kind of kind of make this as brief as possible. But um, 
my background in sales is something I've really stumbled upon through the fortune of having two fantastic parents. So my parents did everything they possibly could to get me into a school that was probably far too good for me. And the result of which, like any kid when they're in a school that's far too good for them, is what I was challenged by is that all the kids in my class had the trainers or sneakers that I wanted to wear. They had the bag that I'd love to be able to carry and all the things that when I went back and asked my mum and dad whether I could have these things, the answer I got, first of all, was no. So I heard this not out of any frustration from their point of view. It just was something that we couldn't do. So it got me starting to think about, well, what could I do to be able to acquire some additional wealth as a young child? And I was doing little things like taking my mum's homemade sandwiches and selling them to the kids in my class with the purpose of being able to generate some cash so now I can have a hot dinner. And that was the fun little thing that started. But it started to move real quick onwards from there where I wanted a pair of new trainers And the trainers I wanted, I remember them specifically. They were called Nike Air Max Contashes. And this was back in like probably the 90s. And these were like 80 pounds even back then. It was kind of a big deal. So I went to my mum and dad asked for the money and I got this the standard answer of no. I then found out that my good friend Paul was about to travel to the US. And the dollar to pound exchange rate at the time was very favorable to British people. And these same trainers were 45 pounds in the US. So I went back and I said to my dad, I says, well, how about I could have 45 pounds for the trainers? Paul's going away on vacation. He said he can pick them up for me when he's there and that we can make that work. And he said, well, no. He said, but I'll tell you what I will do is that if you want to come to work with me tomorrow, then I'll pay you some money. I said, how much will you pay me? And he said, I'll pay you what you're worth. <laughs> and I thought that was an interesting concept. <laughs> Now, I still couldn't get this out of my head, but I finally decided to get up and go to work with my dad the next morning. My dad's a self-employed, building contractor. He's worked every day of his life, pretty much. And I get up early to go to work with my dad, and I arrive on this job to do a piece of work for him, still not knowing what it was. And this was a small terraced house in the UK, so like a townhouse. And the day before, my dad had been stripping off the roof, so the tiles, the battens, the felt, and everything off of the roof. And these things are in the backyard. He's got to go back up onto the roof to do some clever stuff. My job for the day is to take the contents of the backyard and put it into a skip. Now, the trouble with this was is that the contents of what was the rubble in the back of the yard was bigger than the hole in the skip. So I said to Dad, well, what are you going to do if I fill the skip? He says, well, I'll pay you 20 pounds if you fill the skip. And a skip is like a dumpster. And if I do that, then um, what's going to happen next? Because there's more rubble. He says, well, I can call another skip. This is great. So I got to work, got busy, filled the first skip and did it in kind of record time, wanting to make the money. Dad calls the second one and I get the rest of the rubble into the skip and it's two thirds of the way through the day. I'm thinking result 40 pounds in. I'm in really kind of great shape. I'm close to being able to get my trainers. It's a good day. But I said, Dad, what do I do next? He says, well, there's nothing more for you to do. I said, there must be something I can do. He says, why don't you ask the owner of the house if there's anything you can do to help? So that's what I did. I knocked on the door and I asked the owner if there was anything I could do to help. And he said I could help him out, move some boxes, clean up down in the basement. So I just got busy out of the kindness of my heart, really, to see what I could do to pass the time. Now, the day comes to an end and I'm traveling back with my dad in the, uh, in the van on the way home. And he passes me an envelope with some cash in it, 40 pounds. But what I also had was an envelope that was passed to me by the owner of the house when I was leaving. And this is me at like 12, 13 years of age. And I open this envelope on the van on the way back. And this envelope too has 40 pounds in it. 
So my first day going to work, I got paid £80, which was like four times the amount I anticipated from the kickoff of the day. And very quickly got the lesson that you're paid really what you're worth rather than what you think it's going to take for a day's time. And this whetted my appetite for thinking what more I could do. So by the age of 14, I was knocking on the doors of my neighbors and asking them if they'd want their cars washed. By the age of 15, I wasn't going to school anywhere near as often as I should. And I remember even getting invited in by my school teachers, questioning my attendance, saying, Phil, why aren't you coming as often as you should? And my response was always, how much money are you making, sir? And school teachers refused to tell me at the time. But at 15 years of age, my little car cleaning business was giving me the equivalent of really most adults full time wage was earning around two thousand five hundred pounds a month, about four thousand dollars at the time. So it was a fun experience to be entrepreneurial from a real early age and understanding that the things that you want in life are things that you need to be comfortable asking for. I never saw myself as a salesperson until I got to the age of 18 and was faced with a dilemma had an offer on the table for one of the most prestigious schools in my country to go to university and get one of those pieces of paper to make my parents feel like they did a good job. And um, instead, I wanted to go to work in the real world. So I said, how would you feel if I could go get a big job, the kind of job that you would need to get that degree for without having the degree? Would that make you proud? And my parents said it couldn't be done. Yeah, three weeks later, I proved them wrong and became the youngest ever sales manager for a business called Debenhams Department Stores. And that's a beautiful thing to be is in a sales leadership position at the age of 18, because at 18, you just don't know what you don't know. And this kind of bug for sales has then run through everything I've done through my career onwards from that point. Wonderful. And has this, was there something entrepreneurial, you know, going back in your, in your background? I mean, obviously dad was a, was a builder, um, but was there, was there some entrepreneurialism or did, um, in your genes, do you think? I don't know, but I'd, I'd always dreamed a little bit bigger. I mean, one of the things I asked for for like my 12th birthday was Richard Branson's autobiography. And I think, you know, that must have told me something. And I still to this day don't know where I kind of kind of caught that bug from. But I was always fascinated by what other people were up to. And even, you know, when you would go out as a kid to a car boot sale or which is like a garage sale or something that you're just just wandering around. I wasn't looking at what I could buy. I was looking at how people were going about the things they were selling. And it would make me want to go home and think, what don't I need anymore that I might be able to pass on to somebody else for a profit? I still don't know where this came from. I think it's just an inbound desire to want more than what I had and try and work out the puzzle of how to be able to get there. Did you ever envisage that you'd be living you know, between the UK and the US because you live in both countries. It's really funny right now. I'm looking out the window of where my home is in, in the US. And the view out my window runs straight onto the Empire State Building. And it's kind of funny that as I walk down to the waterfront, the very view that I see here is the exact view that I had of a poster on my wall when I was 10, 11, 12 years of age. So there must be some truth to it. And I never set it out as a goal that way around. But I guess I've had more of affinity with you know, the big things that can happen in America. And it's always been something that I wanted to work towards. And and with my speaking business four or five years ago, I made a conscious decision to say, let's go from being a national business to an international business and see where that might be able to take me. Mm. Funny that, isn't it? That about, uh, you know, something that you, you know, a picture like that on your wall. I'm a, I live in the house that I kind of imagine myself living in one day. Uh, it's very like uh, the image that I had of it. Um, it's funny how sometimes if you, you think about something a lot, it seems to materialise. Isn't it funny, right? I think we get what we focus on is probably the easiest way of saying it. 
We do. So what? So let's talk about sales. And I know that you, you know, you draw a real distinction between a salesperson and a sales professional. What's the difference? Well, I think it's about the belief in people's heads. And I, I say that my mission is to teach the world to sell, yet still that makes people shudder and shake at the thought of being a salesperson. When I ask audiences full of people, or even when I meet kids, is I ask them to describe for me a stereotypical salesperson. And the adjectives they reach for are words like pushy, obnoxious, rude, dishonest, liar. And, and these are sets of words that people would hate to have used to describe them. So the picture of what being a salesperson is, is something people are uncomfortable with. I then go on to ask people a different question to say, well, what adjectives would you use to describe a professional salesperson? And they jump to the polar extremes. So words like honest in place of liar. And instead of being pushy, they're knowledgeable, they're empathetic, they're good listeners. And then I ask people, how would they feel if those words were used to be able to start to describe them? And now their faces light up. So I have a genuine belief that it isn't that there's something wrong with salespeople. It's there's something wrong with people's perception of what being a salesperson is. And in 2017 and ahead of the times right now, the days of being you know, able to sell ice to those that live in Iceland is, um, you know, that's not the sign of a great salesperson. And I promise anybody this from the get-go on today's interview. If anybody, particularly a customer, ever says the words to you that you are a great salesperson, that's definitely not a compliment. <laughs> it means that you've been caught trying to sell something on somebody. The result we should always be looking for is that a mutual appreciation of the fact that you've helped somebody to achieve an outcome they couldn't have done without you, resulting in the words, thank you. And I think when you're professional about what you do, then we see ourselves as, as two things. One is, is helping people solve their problems. And two is what we can then do to help lead them through that decision-making process. And that's the point that I think many people kind of miss out on is that they understand that they might have the solution to somebody else's problem. But what they fail to do is to perhaps understand that they might have some involvement in leading them through that decision-making process. And I think if you renamed what a salesperson is to either a decision catalyst or even more simply a professional mind maker-upper, people would have maybe more understanding of what the job really is. And this is a job that everybody needs, regardless of what their true job description is. We're all looking to get somebody to agree to do something, be it an action, be it decide to invest in a product or service. And if you're not selling something to somebody, you have to realize you're the other side of that equation. It means you're buying it from them. Yes, Nick, you can also, I mean, I, I used to be a sales trainer for the Mars organization years ago. And um, I, you know, I think we really work to develop a, a professional sales team. But actually, you know, there is a stigma around sales. There can be. Um, but actually, it can also be a very worthy worthy profession because when people do need the help of, of salespeople to help them select the things that are right for them. Um, and I think when it's done well, it can be very effortless, effortless and actually quite beautiful. And something where everybody wins. Yes. That has to be the most important part here. And, and, and quite often what we're looking to do as, as sales professionals is just help lead the confidence through somebody else's decision. Mm. I meet lots of people that wish they chose to do the thing earlier. I hear that all the time. I wish I decided to give you the contract earlier. I wish I decided to partner with you earlier. I wish I decided to buy this right the first time. I wish I decided to, to buy the premium option first time round because then I wouldn't be going back and replacing it. I wish, I wish, I wish. 
And if they'd have met the right person at the right time that would have helped them find the confidence to make the right decision, then that would have been a win for all parties. Mm. And another big question to ask yourself, particularly when people are fearful of the idea of sales, is, I mean, Chris, do you like to buy stuff? I do. And so do yeah. most people. You know, the, the buying experience should be a pleasant one. And to have the responsibility or role to assist that process for somebody, to help them come out with the right solutions for them, I, I think is one of the most privileged gifts in the world. The fact that I can get paid to help people spend money. It's a mm. win. Mm. Yes, I, I'm, one of my favorite possessions is my, my Paul Reed Smith guitar. And I not only spent a lot of money on a Paul Reed Smith guitar, I was also, I was also so pleased with it that I tracked down the president and interviewed him on this show. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> so uh, it was fascinating. Um, so, yeah, we, we do want to buy. I've just got about a minute left, but I, and I think it might just be worth explaining as well why sales is a philosophy and it's not just a department. I, I think there are only two departments in, in, in every business. One of those departments is the sales department and the other department is the sales support department. Like nothing happens unless a sale takes place. And for businesses to grow, they need to acquire more customers. They need to get more transactions from the customers that they've already got. And everybody at every part of the business is responsible for that in some way. Not just the sales team, because the sales team are making promises that other people need to maintain and exceed upon. The reception staff are making first impressions that lead towards the success of whether somebody will or won't make that transaction and choose you. And every consumer has choice. They have the choice to choose you, choose somebody like you, or the choice to do absolutely nothing. So helping them make that decision is everybody's job. And people need to have a sales mindset if they want to see their business thrive in this kind of challenging environment that we're in right now. Excellent. Well, we're going to come back after the break. We're going to start to talk about some of the key essentials of selling. And uh, we'll be talking about confidence and opening doors and, uh, and different strategies. And there's a couple of really cool things in Phil's book that I'm also, since reading it, we've been using as well. So we might even chat about one or two of those. So do join us again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Phil M. Jones. We're talking about uh, winning more business. And we're we're starting to talk about sales for non-salespeople. And I I really, really, really get what Phil is is saying. Um, A few years ago, I ran a sales program for a large insurance uh, company. And we were were training multiple departments, including uh, the underwriting section, who really didn't get the idea of uh, initially why they were involved in a sales program. In fact, we had to change the name so they didn't think they were going to be on a sales program. but um, there's, a, there's a role, Phil, isn't there, for everybody in an organization when it comes to selling. It's not just the, the sales function's responsibility. Even the receptionist has a role. Everybody has a role, Chris. And it's something that I think if more and more businesses could embrace, regardless of the size or the scale of that business, is what everybody is doing is that they are, they are trading on each other's relationships. So the salesperson needs the person that picks up the phone for when the inquiry comes in to set a standard that they can be able to build upon. The delivery people of whatever the product or service is, whoever's responsible for creating and curating and producing the final product has a responsibility to meet or exceed the expectation that was laid down by the person that introduced the product. Everybody's leaning on each other's promises and expectations. And what we have to understand a business really is, is is adding value to a product or service to a point that you can generate a profit from it and then repeating this process time and time again. So everybody is involved in it in some way, shape or form. And the more that people can understand about how they support that sales process, the business will run faster. I guess another angle to that as well in that as you as you work with an organization, do you have to be able to sell ideas and concepts to your colleagues? So it's All not- the time. And everybody is selling something at some point. You know, yes, it's selling an idea. Yes, it's selling a behavioral change. It might even be selling to your boss as to why they should give you the promotion as opposed to somebody else the promotion. It may be in a tender scenario that what you're looking at is you're looking to be able to identify that you have the skills and abilities over somebody else. We're always trying to win somebody over to our way of thinking. And selling isn't just products and services. It's ideas and actions too. Yeah, job interviews as well. Of course. Um, So... One of the things, um, you know, so, so somebody, people listen to this and thinking, well, what are the, you know, what are the key essentials that I must know if I, if I need to embrace this role of selling? Um, you know, what are some of the key things so that I'm, I'm doing it right? Okay. Um, key things as doing it right. Well, let's look at some of the things that people think is, is doing it right and maybe demystify some of those and help people realize that that may be some of the wrong things first. And I hear lots of people that talk about, well, what you need to do is is features and benefits. And I hear trainers do things that what they'll do is they'll give somebody a paperclip or a a kind of useless pen or a basic item and say, can you come up with as many features and benefits as you possibly can about this thing to make it attractive to another person? And that's what people think that selling is. It's like, well, you should buy this paperclip because it's made of stainless steel and that means that it won't rust. And that means that what it will be able to do is this, this, this and this. That's not the game. What selling really is, is earning the right to be able to make a recommendation. 
So that means that you should never, ever, 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 ever introduce your product, service or idea to somebody until you've gathered enough evidence first to understand it's the right thing for them. The game isn't anything to do with how you get people to say yes more often. It's how you eliminate the options of no, resulting in you being the only choice. What this then means is that we should really be focusing more of our efforts on questioning than we should on embellishing our product and service to try and find an alignment that is this a right fit? Much of what the salesperson's responsibility is, is to help find out whether you're right for them. It's all an exploration. It isn't a case of saying, look at my shiny object, let me tell you how shiny it is. It's about going on a discovery with the other person to find the right fit so that every party comes away happy and that we can meet expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because it may well be that what somebody wants to buy might be different to what you think you're selling, but actually you still be capable of delivering it well. Because like- And most customers have no idea what they want. No. So we, we have to then work with that scenario, too, is that, you know, Steve Jobs probably said it best is that, you know, he spent zero money on the uh, market research towards the iPad because he knew if he asked customers whether they'd quite like the idea of something that's bigger than a phone but smaller than a laptop, doesn't have a keyboard and can't make phone calls, the majority of people would probably say that's a stupid idea. Yet today, tablet technology is revolutionized the way that people live their lives. And Henry Ford got there before him when he said if he listened to his customers, all they'd have tried to do was to make a faster horse. Mm. So we have to be in the process of innovating. And what we are as sales professionals is that we are problem solvers. So if you can go and discover what the true problem is, then you can utilize your expertise to be able to make recommendations towards other people that are perhaps beyond what they expected or different to what they realized was possible. And that's where you earn your money. Because you're helping give people more than they knew was available. And if people know what they want, they don't need a salesperson. They'll go to the internet and buy it today. They'll just go straight out there and buy it. But if you have the opportunity to influence, you need to earn the right to be able to demonstrate your expertise by listening, asking questions, and recommending solutions that solve the problem that you've only just uncovered. It sounds like a really good time, actually, to just have a chat about sort of magic words and questions, which I know is a, you know, a big thing for you. Um, you know, what are some of the, you know, the most sort of powerful questions that you find people who are very good at selling utilize well? I, I, I think, you know, let's start with something that's not so much magic words, but just something that's a great place to start any consultative conversation is the majority of people I meet that would class themselves as salespeople are actually sales prevention officers. They stand in the way of success by turning up to a discussion and just dumping out their presentation, hoping that something's going to stick. A far better place to start is just with an open question, which is something like, you know, what's intrigued you to invite us in to be able to discuss this with you today? Yes. What's been happening in your world that's made you think that this might be a good idea? Now, if you ask those kind of open questions when you find yourself into a discussion, then you start to learn. And say it was a product-based scenario. Let's make it remarkably simple that you're walking into a, you know, a, 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 an appliance center because you're thinking about buying a new washing machine. Wouldn't it make a better sense to ask questions to kick the thing off to say, well, how many washing machines have you, have you owned in the past? What was wrong with the old one? Why did you think about coming here to consider how we can help? What are the three most important things for you to look for in a washing machine? What do you understand about the differences? 
and asking these kind of curious questions puts you into a situation where you can learn what might be the right thing for them. Mm. If we're going to talk magic words, though, these probably come more into conversation where we are looking to, to influence. Now, we quite often get people to a point where they're remarkably interested in our idea, our product, our service, our action, the thing that we're looking for them to do. And I call it kind of like getting them up on the fence. And I'm sure everybody listening in right now has had a scenario where something nearly happened. People agreed that it was a good idea or something they wanted to do conceptually, but couldn't make it happen in the real world. Couldn't nudge it over that final piece. Mm. And there's lots of ways that we can do that. And much of it can be done with simple prefaces to questions or prefaces to statements that make life a lot easier for you. And here's a couple of examples. One great example is a set of two words that you can utilize to get just about anybody to agree with just about anything. And I'll give you the two words in a second, but what these two words can do is they allow people the confidence that people like them have acted in a certain way before them, so it makes decision-making easier. You know, like if somebody else has done something a hundred times and they say that this is a good idea to do, you now believe them, but if you're asked to do it by yourself, you'd find it harder. That gives us great confidence. The other thing that we have to understand is that we love that safety in numbers. I can create that safety in numbers with just two simple words to get people out of indecision quickly, purely by explaining to somebody else that in this circumstances, this is what most people would do. So instead of saying what I think you should do is, I could say, Chris, look, in your circumstances, what most people would do is. And what your little voice would do, the subconscious inside your brain would say, aha, I'm most people. Mm -hmm. So if that's what most people would do, then in a rejection-free fashion, you step towards the thing that I've suggested because I've made it seem like the obvious choice. Now, let's build on that in another way. If I'm trying to get somebody to choose between a couple of different options, if I could preface the options, not with which one would you like to go for, but what's going to be easier for you. So what's going to be easier for you? Hunting something down on eBay to try and find a washing machine that... Um, Maybe it's a significantly amount cheaper, but without you having the understanding of whether it's compatible within your water system and without it having any warranties or guarantees or any backup if things go wrong, or putting your confidence in us here now, right now, knowing that you'd get something that would last you a long time and we've got a promise behind it to take care of it. What's going to be easier for you? Yes. Yes. And that question gives the it gives you the perception of choice. And this is what people often want, is they want the feeling of the fact that nobody convince them on anything and you're not looking to convince what you're looking to be able to do is to help somebody make their mind up so by stacking things in a way that can help them see sense for themselves then they can pick the right option which is the option that you wanted them to pick and sometimes people are people are you know, people are busy aren't they and some people actually maybe want to purchase reasonably quick and, and actually that helps them and that, and that, yeah. and that, yeah, absolutely. And another thing when it comes through to decision making, and this is going to go a little scientific, but every decision that anybody has ever made has been made at least twice. Every decision. It's been made at least once hypothetically in your mind. Think about the words, oh, I couldn't see myself doing that. It's quite a literal thing. If you cannot see yourself doing something, you're never going to do it. So the first action you have to get somebody to do is to see themselves doing the thing before you ask them to do the thing. If you want to get people to see themselves doing something before you invite them to make a decision that could help them in that set of circumstances, we can use two more magic words. 
Now, these words have been formulated from something that I know that works because I've seen it work with children. Now, if you start a conversation with a child with the words once upon a time, they cannot help but think that this is going to be a great story. And they open their imagination and their ears prick up and they go to this little happy place. You can't start conversations with adults with the words once upon a time. But you can start words, uh, conversations with adults with the words just imagine. Mm-hmm. So if I was to say, look, you know, let's take this, this, this washing machine scenario that we've stumbled across for some scenario, some reason is, is just imagine seven months on from now that you're in a situation where you've just come back from vacation. You've got five loads of washing to get done before you go back to work on Monday and the washing machine blows up. What would be easier for you? Having somebody you could call that could take care of it next day for you or needing to get yourself back into a situation of buying a brand new one. But I start with that just imagine scenario and they jump to the hypothetical set of circumstances and decision making is easier when you put somebody in a bad news situation or you put them in the situation where they might need to use the service that you're about to explain is valuable. Mm. How do you how do salespeople build confidence? Because you know, sometimes having these conversations uh, with people, you know, you know, people can get nervous, can't they? And um you know, I'm, how I'm do you build confidence? Trouble. It's a great question. And you have to understand where confidence comes from. Confidence comes from experience. It's the only place that confidence comes from. And that means that you've got this chicken and egg or catch-22 scenario. Is Where do you find confidence ahead of a meeting if you haven't been experienced in going out in these meetings? Understanding, though, I think that confidence comes from experience, my advice to the listeners right now is find happiness in failing. Is go out, get yourself some experience, go mess it up. And, you know, I've had somewhere bordering on, I don't know, 20, 30, 40,000 sales negotiations live. And that's why when I find myself in a difficult, challenging negotiation, I think I've got this because I've been in thousands of scenarios in the past where I know that that's the outcome and there isn't very much that somebody could say to me I haven't heard before. But you can't just decide that you're going to be confident. What you can do, though, is that you can understand that success breeds success and failure really hurts. And what many people do do, though, is they measure success as a black and white type set of circumstances. So it's either I meet them today, they purchase today, I win, or I meet them today, they didn't buy today, I lose. Yet with the challenge of the fact that for you to win, you need to lose more than you win for the compound effect to be worth it. Yet every time that you win, success breeds success, but failure is part of the game. And I know I played that out as a riddle. I've done it on purpose. Hmm. Um, This can be a real like mess of the head. Because we need to be in that purple patch where what we're doing is that we're feeling like this is going to go well. You need to go into every conversation thinking that this is the one. Yet in the back of your mind, you know you're going to have to kiss more frogs to find princes. So we have to then break down success. What if instead of saying success is black and white, what if we broke down the levels of gray? So say, for example, that you're in an environment that you are needing to make outbound phone calls. What if you said the first success was that I got to make a contact with somebody and that they picked up the phone? The second success was that when I got to that point in time, I gave a good representation of myself and my company. The third success was that I got to build some rapport and find out some key information about them. The fourth success was that I got to understand whether there was a genuine opportunity and gather enough information to be able to make a recommendation. 
on doing so that then the next success was that I gave a great recommendation that was fitting for the cause. The next success was I asked for a decision and I got one, regardless of whether it was a yes or a no. Then having got a decision, I looked at the same, well, what are the things I could get next? So I go past the yes and think of another six, seven, eight, nine, ten things I could have got from that conversation. And now instead of counting your conversations, you're making your conversations count. And what this then leads to is instead of saying, did I win or did I lose? Every conversation becomes, how much did I win by? Now, providing that what you did is that you didn't mess up the first step, which was to give a good representation of yourself and your company, which is completely within your control, you are always succeeding to a point. And if you are always succeeding, then what you're kind of teaching yourself is that you've got a proven track record of winning. When you feel like you win in everything you do, naturally you find more confidence and you accelerate your experience in a quicker period of time and carry less baggage. It's the baggage that will stop you finding confidence. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of minutes to commercial break, but one thing that's going through my mind is is that some organizations you know, setting sales targets. Um, I remember going into my first sales role and I had, I had 12 vending machines a month to place. Okay. Um, and that puts a bit of pressure on uh, because uh, you might go through some of those stages, but you might not, you know, sell to your targets, which could also impact your confidence. Okay. Um, my view on that is number one: take a long-term view. You know, you might have a bad week, a bad day, a bad month, even, but don't plan on having a bad year. Look at seeing where you can take a long-term view and where you can pick up the slack in between. Yeah. In addition to that, when it comes to target setting, regardless of what you're set, you should never have one. Give yourself three as an absolute minimum. What's your minimum performance standard you would accept for yourself? What are you really aiming at? And then what would happen if today was your birthday? What would be your stretch number? And what you can then do is that you raise the bottom. The bottom is now no longer zero. The bottom is your minimum performance standard. Well, not one that's been set by your employer or your company or your accountant or your shareholders, one that you decide for yourself. And then outperform your minimum every month and stretch towards that bigger goal as opposed to stopping when you meet the company target that's laid down and it will all smooth out to be a great year. Yeah, great advice. Great advice. That. Well, we're going to go to commercial break now. After the break, we shall come back and uh, and look at some more um, key components, like how you best open doors and you know, how you start to maybe manage a, a sales team, that sort of thing. So we'll be back again with you in just a minute. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, it's Chris Cooper. I'm with Phil M. Jones. We're talking about winning more business and Phil was really um, talking about some of the you know, great questions you can ask and we were talking about um, about hitting, you know, setting your, yourself, look, taking a long-term view and setting uh, some targets and things for yourself, for your development, to build your confidence. But Phil, I, when I read your book, I thought there were some really great tips and techniques on opening new doors. And I wondered if you've got anything you'd like to share with us. Yeah, I, I mean, I can jump at a few things here in terms of, in terms of opening doors and I think it starts though right back at the beginning is a huge mistake that most people make in sales is that they have no idea what they're shooting for. They'll take anything and everything. I speak to companies right now and I ask them if they got, you know, maybe a customer they wish they didn't have. And the answer to that question is normally yes. And then I say to them, well, how did you go about finding that customer? Is that somebody you strategically hunted down, somebody you went for? And they say, well, no, not really. It's somebody that stumbled across them. And if you think, well, why would somebody stumble across you? Then one of the answers could be because somebody else decided they didn't want them as a customer anymore. Now, if that was true, then that would quite literally mean that they were feeding on somebody else's waste. Now, that doesn't sound like too much of a good thing to me. And um, we've got to get good at saying, well, how do you get in front of more of the right kind of people? This is an easy thing to be able to do once you know who the people are you want to get in front of. Yet the majority of people are just waiting for some stuff to happen. So let's have a look at a few different ways. And I wrote, in fact, a little book called Straightforward, which is one that you might not be aware of, which is all about appointment creation and all about how you can get in front of more of the right kind of people. Starts by not looking for a heat needle in a haystack, deciding on what you're looking for. And then behind that, it says, well, actually, just be brave enough to be able to ask. It can just come from picking up the phone. And in today's day and age, everybody wants to send some fancy marketing piece or they want to send, you know, um, a serious email campaign to try and get through the door. And the majority of business owners, phones don't ring anymore. So you can quite often just get in front of the right kind of person by picking up the phone and asking to be able to speak to them. But you've got to have it clear in your mind what you're asking to speak to them about. And one of the things that I found about most decision makers is that nearly every decision maker on this planet has an ego. And they have an ego in a number of different ways. Anybody with an ego always loves to give something. So instead of asking for the thing that you want, you're far better to ask for the one thing that everybody loves to give, which is their opinion. Now, if you were to reach out and speak to perhaps a decision maker that you wanted to be able to do some business with, regardless of your means of communication, if your first course of action isn't to say, I've got this thing that you might like, it's to say that I'm working on this thing and I'm looking for people whose opinions I respect to maybe to give me some advice about how I could bring it to market. And I've been following your work for a while. I wondered if I can have 15 minutes of your time to bounce some ideas off you because I'd really value your opinion. You're like 10 times more likely to get that person to give you their time because they think this is about them giving and being utilized for their expertise. Another way of being able to open more doors is, is to show first. I remember a fascinating point of time in my life where I was, um, I was in Stratford-upon-Avon, in fact, in the UK. And I had a group of people with me and my family. And there was a couple of kids along tow as well. And what the kids needed to do was to go to the bathroom. So they run off to the bathroom. I'm now left on my own. The rest of the girls go with them. 
and I'm doing the one thing that I hate more than anything else in the world. And what I'm doing is waiting. As I'm waiting, I'm looking around in the high street and it's like crazy early in the morning. There's nothing going on, but there's one store down a cobbled street that has got all this activity, this hive of activity around it. And I'm fascinated by this. Why is this store crazy busy when nobody else is up and about? And I walk towards the store and as I get closer, I realize it's a confectionery store, but not just a confectionery store. It's a shop selling fudge. I'm thinking, why on earth at like 8 a.m. on a weekend morning are people queuing up outside a fudge shop? Curious as I am, the closer I get towards it, I realize what's happening is outside there's a young girl with a silver tray. And she has small little samples of fudge on it. And as people are coming past, she says, would you like to try? Would you like to try? Would you like to try? And she backs people into the store. Now, I don't know whether this works or not. Yet four minutes later, I find myself at the counter ordering like six pieces of fudge. Now, I never woke up that morning thinking what's missing from my life is fudge. <laughs> Nor did I look at the window. And when it said established 25 years, did I think that makes me want to be able to go and buy from them? Nor did I see an advert that said three for two that made me want to rush in there and be able to buy six portions. It was the fact that they were brave enough to be able to say, come and try a little bit. Come and get ankle deep in this thing. And I think one of the wonderful ways that we can get people to understand more about our products, our services, our advice is to engage them in and to involve them in it. And a more practical example that we've run in that exact same way with a, um, a hearing aid company. In fact, I do a lot of work here in the US with audiologists and dispensers to help people grow their awareness of the effects of hearing loss and how they can treat it and how it doesn't get so bad if they can catch it early enough. And it results in sometimes them buying hearing aids. But the idea of selling hearing aids is a bad thing. So what we tend to do instead is that we did environments like um, in shopping centers we decided it was Hearing Awareness Week and that we created opportunities for people to engage with the product, play with the product and have a no obligation hearing consultation there and then. And we made it fun. And because we made it fun and we found ourselves surrounded by people who were the target market, we got in front of way more of the right number of people and we uncovered opportunities for these people to need some of the products and services that they didn't know they had because most people do not know what they're missing. I think there's some great examples there. I think food shops are particularly good at selling um, quite a few of them anyway. I've, I've also been found myself being sucked into them. Kids like to try them. They're making them inside and suddenly you've found yourself you spent six or seven pounds <laughs> before you know it. Um, it's a really good example. Um, I'm just, uh, my, yeah, we're okay in terms of uh, sort of time. So so I think some really good tools and, and thoughts there. Um any thoughts around using things like social media and that sort of thing to attract sales opportunity? Yeah, huge, huge thoughts, really. And, and I mean, it's a giant topic, Chris. So, I mean, how far we go into it, I don't know. But I, I would say that some of the platforms that are underutilized or utilized incorrectly are platforms like LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn is a wonderful tool full of contacts of the right kind of people. But what can happen is people try to get to the shortcut. And if I'm to take maybe principles that they maybe might understand from other areas of life, the behavior I see many people uh, demonstrate on social media is they go straight for the kill. So it's like they're sending an in-mail on LinkedIn directly through to somebody saying, this is me, this is what I've got, here is my chunk of services, here are our prices, would you like to buy it? 
I see other examples on things like Facebook where people will friend request potential prospects, potential customers, and within minutes are DMing them and sending private messages of video content. This whole process that people go through is kind of like looking for something inappropriate on a first date. It's going straight out, meeting somebody in a bar and expecting within 15 minutes for them to be turning back up into, uh, into maybe a set of circumstances that you're going to enter into some relations. That is not how you do business. And I'd encourage people to slow it down. Now, I learned a great piece of advice from a friend of mine. In fact, you've had him on the show here before, I think, is a guy called Rob Brown. Mm, And Rob Brown says to me, and this rings true and I go on and repeat it, is that questions lead to conversations. Conversations lead to relationships. Relationships lead to opportunities and opportunities lead to sales. That is a process that will never, ever go out of fashion. And all of the social platforms just provide a wonderful way of being able to facilitate those five steps. So what this then means is if you want to find more success, then ask more questions of people. Now, the question might be really simple. Take something like LinkedIn. If there's somebody you'd like to do business with, then find that person on LinkedIn and find a mutual connection that you have and they have. Send an invitation towards that person. But in the invitation, say, I can see that we both know, insert name of mutual connection, how did you two meet? Now, that would be a soft opening of a question. The likelihood is they'll come back, say, I know that person from here, there or wherever. You say, great. And you say, well, I've got some ideas that I'd like to bounce off you. I'd love to better get to know you a little better, see how we might be able to help each other. I just wondered whether you might have 15 minutes for a chat sometime. They say, yeah, sure. You have a chat with them. You get to know them. You understand their problems. And what you perceived might have been a good fit, you now look to validate is a good fit so that both of you are at the same place at the same time. And relationships won't go out of fashion, yet people are using digital media in a way that what they can do is throw so much mud at the wall that some of it sticks and they think that it works, yet they ignore all the destruction that it causes on the way. Yeah, I think I like that. I think that's really, really valid. And that, that's looking at how you can help each other. Um, so there's really feels like there's something in it for both parties. Um, and there really has to be nowadays because reputation is everything. I used the example earlier and, and people said he's such a good salesperson. He can sell sand to the Arabs. Now, if you sell sand to the Arabs in 2017, then what happens is day two after this transaction is complete, the person who spent the money feels stupid and they run to the Internet and they will be causing all sorts of bad news about the way you've done business because they feel like they haven't got value. So gone are the days of, you know, high-fiving because of the fact that what you've done is that you've made this giant success. And I... You know, it's interesting that, you know, movies are out that maybe put the halo effect around what salespeople is. So things like The Wolf of Wall Street. Now, if Mm -hmm. that thing happened in 2017, that company would have been shut down before it got big because of the transparency that social media would have created would have meant that the unhappy people who weren't getting the results out of the investments they were making would have made enough noise to mean that future people wouldn't have put their money in. So there wouldn't have been private jets. There wouldn't have been yachts. There wouldn't have been this hero status associated with what could happen towards it because the consumer didn't win. And to succeed in anything in business, and sales in particular, it has to work this way around. Does the customer win? Does the salesperson win? Does the company win? Do the shareholders win? And in that order, and if every single person in that chain can come out of this thinking that was worth it, then you can build on it. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've only got about three minutes now until we need to end the interview. But I just wonder if you've got a tip or two on quickly on dealing with indecision when people you, you talked there earlier about not quite managing to tip somebody over and to making the right decision yeah I, I mean i gave you those two words most people that can help a great deal but let's look at something quick and easy firstly you have to think about any indecision as a negotiation and the negotiation could qu- negotiation could quite easily be an argument now arguments end with winners and losers now this means if you're the winner what's the other person loser And if people feel like a loser, they don't feel like spending money with you. So getting into an argument is a bad thing. When you're stuck with somebody who's in indecision, say they're giving you an objection back, the natural reaction is want to tell them that they're wrong and how much righter you are, and you try to give them an alternative point of view, but they've already closed down their point of view. What an objection is, or what any indecision is, is a challenge to your control in the conversation. And success in sales is all about maintaining control in a conversation. The minute an objection is raised, they've challenged your control. You need to get it back. How do you get control back when somebody has looked to take it from you in conversation? Well, it's straightforward. Think about the TV shows. Who's in control of, say, the, uh, the Late Late Show with, uh, with James Corden? Well, James Corden is in control. Why? Because he's the one that's asking the questions. It's always the person who's asking the questions who's in control of the conversation. So when you're facing indecision, we're not looking for a witty answer. We're looking for a great question that brings the control back towards you that allows you to position your alternative point of view. And this question really needs to be something that brings clarity on the circumstances. Let's take the most common objections. And I need some time to think about it. I want to speak to my partner. I'm going to be shopping around. I'm happy with my existing. Is that your best possible price? Whatever they might be. I can give questions back for each of them independently, or I can give you one question that works with them all. And given the time we have, I should probably do the one that works with them all. Yeah. (laughs) So if somebody says to me, is that your best possible price? My response would be, what makes you say that? If somebody says to me that I'm looking to shop around on this before I make a decision, I say, what makes you say that? If they say, I need some time to think about it, you say, really? What makes you say that? Now what I've done is I've completely shifted control and I get more color on the scenario to understand where they're coming from as opposed to taking their punch and throwing one back. I take the punch, I listen, and I let them explain their point of view. And once they explain their point of view with brevity, I'm then in a position that I can understand it better and I can showcase some of the ways that maybe I didn't explain myself right Maybe I haven't given them enough information and maybe I can provide them with more information to help them make more of an informed decision. Excellent. That's really helpful. Phil, we're going to have to uh, kind of leave it there. But do you have a single message very quickly you'd like to leave us with? Single, single message is understand that you have far more power in the influence of conversations than you've ever thought was possible. And the reason that you're involved in these conversations is because people saw you as the expert. They believe that you have some value in the ability to be able to help them with that decision. Don't fall short of that responsibility. Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Lots of ideas, tips and thoughts for people there on uh, on winning more business and, and really you know, becoming a better sales um, professional. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great, great time too, Chris. Uh, it's been a real blast.
You're welcome. And um, if you want to find out more information about Phil, go to philmjones.com. As mentioned, he's got a great new book coming out called Exactly What to Say. So that will really build on some of those um, great tips and ideas that he's uh, shared with us today, like what makes you say that. And, and on next week's show, we have a show with Mike Dixon and Lynn Prescott, who are really significant experts in the area of category management. So we're going to find out about category management and how um, how organizations with their got many many products and supermarkets and that sort of things really manage them as a category and build develop grow them so that they add more value to their customers and build um, market segments so relevant to anyone with products and services so do join us again uh, next week we thank you for listening to the business elevation show please join your host chris cooper again next friday at 8 a.m u.s pacific time on the voice america business channel be more achieve more